I'd like to share one further reading, and this one is from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temples. For he will hide me in his shelter in the days of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O God, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on level paths because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. The psalmist says, God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Well, today is Australia Day. And it's only once every seven years that we actually get to mark Australia Day on a Sunday. So I'm going to tell a few stories, but maybe it's appropriate for the first one to be a story from the First Fleet. William Dawes was a young Marine Lieutenant who came with the First Fleet. He was an accomplished astronomer, he was a navigator, he was a surveyor. Dawes set up his hut some distance away from the main settlement at what is today's Dawes Point. It's where the southern pylons of the, of the Sydney Harbour Bridge are driven into the ground. Dawes lived apart from the settlement so he could focus on his astronomy. And Elizabeth MacArthur, 
quipped that the time that Lieutenant Dawes is so engaged with the stars that he's not always visible to the naked eye. Being away from the main settlement, the Aboriginal people of that place, the Aura, would visit him and he built up a deep friendship. He learnt the local Aboriginal languages. His notebooks are the first documentation of an Aboriginal language. They record snippets of conversation and evidence of real depth of relationship and friendship. While respected by the other white settlers for his skills, his friendships were with the local Aboriginal people. Dawes was a radical Protestant. He was a troublesome Methodist, which in those times was a term of abuse. He was a friend of William Wilberforce and associated with other similar radicals. He was known in the colony for his integrity, his simplicity of lifestyle, his deep spirituality and his deep respect for others. In 1790, the governor's gamekeeper was supposedly killed by a group of Aboriginal warriors and a punitive expedition was sent out to extract retribution. They had a certain number of Aboriginal heads that they had to bring back to the settlement. Dawes at first refused to participate. He sought the counsel of the clergy who directed him to contemplate upon Romans 13 let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. So Dawes reluctantly joined the hunting party and being the group's navigator was able to ensure they did not find any Aboriginal camp on their outing. But even though he did not get blood on his hands, on his return Dawes confessed what he had done publicly and he confessed his regret to deciding to go with the hunting party and follow the governor's orders because he said it violated his own conscience. Governor Philip was angered by Dawes' very public moral stand and he attempted to discredit Dawes. He compelled Dawes to make a public confession that he had been trading in black market rations. Dawes desperately wanted to stay in the colony but believed that it was impossible to either confess or apologise to the governor and the only option he had was to leave. Dawes sailed for England in 1791, never to return. This is maybe one of the greatest tragedies of our colonial history. What difference might this faithful Christian, this first conscientious objector, this first European learner of indigenous languages and culture, this first European friend to the Aboriginal people have made to the course of our subsequent relationships between first and second peoples in this land. He was too far outside the paradigm of the civilised and savage, the master and servant, the dominant and subordinate for this country to tolerate him. Dawes left Australia to become a campaigner against slavery and eventually governor of the freed slave colony of Sierra Leone. 
Some of you might have met Dawes before. He's the fictional lieutenant in Kate Grenfell's novel, The Lieutenant, (coughs) which is actually quite accurate to what the actual story was of Dawes' life. It's clear that it was the light of God that gave Dawes his strength of character an ability to stand up against authority. It's clearly also his faith that enabled him to see all people as being created in the image of God. God is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? I want to do a book promotion. Stuart Pigden and Robert Linder have written this marvellous history, The Fountain of Public Prosperity, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1740 to 1914. And the next volume has just come out. But the whole introduction to to, um, Pigden's book is this story of Dawes. And at the end of that section, he says, what a tragedy that this man had to leave the colony. What would it have been like if he'd stayed? God is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? I first went to the Philippines to work with Indigenous communities in 1989, which I sat down and worked out the maths and it was over 30 years ago. It's hard for me to imagine, but we do get older. The first six years I was in the Philippines was working with tribal communities in the island of Mindoro. In the Philippines, especially during that time, there was an active insurgency. The guerrilla zone was pretty much identical to where the communities were that the church was working with. The government military and militia would pass through the communities hunting insurgents. Mostly they were abusive to the people. They would steal their animals and food supplies. They would treat the people with very little respect and often with random and arbitrary violence. It was often the government militias who were on the side of the landlords and acting to drive the people off their traditional lands. The guerrilla fighters, called the New People's Army, were the exact opposite. They were highly disciplined, would help the people with basic farm tasks like harvesting. They would provide medical care for people who were sick. They would help resolve community disputes. They would try and protect the communities against the rapacious landlords and outsiders. The contrast could not be any starker. It's not difficult to guess where the people's sympathies resided. On our part, if we didn't find a way to welcome both groups, then it would have been impossible to continue our work. Often in the night, the guerrillas would come through. In the daytime, the soldiers, the insurgents would come back through the villages we were working in at night. Most of the guerrilla fighters were poor farmers who had been driven off their land 
and were there to fight for basic justice. But a few were more deeply informed by their revolutionary ideologies. I remember one of the most formative conversations that I had in my life was talking to one of these commanders who I'd come to know quite well. He was trying to convince me of the merits of their hoped-for glorious revolution. And I remember saying to this guy, who was by now a friend, Jago, you know if you actually succeed in your revolution, you will probably have to kill me. He was confused. No, you'll be okay. It's only the counter-revolutionaries who will be a problem. I said, but after the revolution, you will probably think that I'm a counter-revolutionary. He looked at me confused and said, why? I said, because I'm a Christian. I said, because just as my faith calls me to seek the welfare and stand up for the rights of those who are excluded and outcast and abused by the present regime, I will be just as compelled to stand up for those who are excluded and outcast and abused by your glorious revolution. The kingdom of God is coming. We're invited to participate. But ultimately, it is not a kingdom built with human hands. I know sometimes I trouble some of you about some of the things I might say, not from the pulpit, but in uh, maybe on Facebook or other places about some of our political leaders. I try hard to keep my political commentaries out of the pulpit, but I can assure you that I'm a non-partisan malcontent. I believe it's our Christian calling, or at least mine, to be agitating, goading and pushing governments to act more justly to seek to include all people, especially the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the marginal, and that the law should never be made to bend in favour of the powerful or used to silent legitimate dissent. I believe we should uphold our political leaders always in prayer. We should observe the law, and when through conscience we cannot, we must be willing to pay the penalty and we should continually agitate, goad our political leaders towards a vision of society that is more inclusive, more equitable and more just. I can assure you if you think that I grumble too much against our present government, then I will be no less of a grumbler against any future one. I believe I'm part of a kingdom that's not of this world, whose standards are far higher than those of our political establishment. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? I want to read something. I am a Jew. I'm a Jew and will be a Jew forever. Even if I should die from hunger, never will I submit. I will always fight for my people on my honour. 
I will never be ashamed of them. I give my word. I'm proud of my people, how dignified they are. Even though I am suppressed, I will always come back to life. These words were written by Fran Tabas. He was a prisoner in a place called Terezin. He died in Auschwitz in October 1944. He was 14 years old. Jesse's going to put a picture up. Terezin's a small town 35 miles northwest of Prague in what's now Czech, the Czech Republic. It grew up around a fortress built at the end of the 18th century. When Terezin came under German control, the fortress was used as a prison for Jewish children. From 1942 to 1944, more than 15,000 children under the age of 15 passed through Terezin. Less than 100 survived. There's a book of poems and drawings from the children of Terezin. It's called I Never Saw a Butterfly. Another book promotion. I'm going to put it outside so you can look at it after the service. It's a book that, when I first encountered it, left an indelible oppression on my consciousness. First, because of my naivety and stupidity. I'd always thought about the Holocaust as an adult experience. I'd always thought of the incredible suffering of the Holocaust almost solely through adult eyes, as an adult experience. And when I first read this collection of children's drawings and writings, it just pulled me up with the shocking realisation that childhood existed during the Holocaust, even if brief. The other shock was that despite the horror and daily misery of these uprooted children, the images and drawings were not overwhelmingly bleak, but were hopeful, defiant, courageous, optimistic. There's this beautiful painting of a small, fragile boat, almost engulfed by the darkness, which appears to be being drawn towards the light of this candle. The art and poetry contained in this book are sacred. The voices of the innocent speak out with such power. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? In the passage that Graham read from Isaiah, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel were confronted with their own experience of Holocaust. The Assyrian armies have marched in, burning and looting and destroying everything they can and imposing a heavy yoke and cruel oppression on the people. In the few verses before those we read, Isaiah tells us what things were like. Whether they turn their gaze upward or look down, everywhere is distress and darkness is inescapable. Constraint and gloom that cannot be avoided, for there is no escape for an oppressed people. But then a sudden turn, and the prophet begins to sing in the midst of this great darkness a new song. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those who lived in the land as dark as death, a light has dawned. The yoke of oppression, the bar of servitude, upon the shoulders, the overlord's baton are all broken. The power of Isaiah's song is not that he's singing about something that's already come about. Rather, the power of the song is that it's sung in the midst of the darkest oppression. It's at the darkest moment in the history of the people that rather than surrender to defeat, they recall the promises of God. So sure is God's promise that they're invited to sing, rejoice and live as if they have already come true even, no, especially in the midst of oppression. I'm reminded of the painting of the Terezin girl, the sailboat, fragile, yet moving from darkness into the light. I'm reminded of Franta Bass, that 14-year-old, defiant, fearless, even when his own death is already certain. I'm reminded of William Dawes, who's caught a glimpse of a vision of God's justice that he was able to stand before Governor Philip and say, no, I will not. I'm reminded of our own visions of God's justice, which empower us, even in the midst of a broken world, to look forward to the coming kingdom. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? In our reading from the Gospel of Matthew, we encounter Jesus. At the beginning of his public ministry, he's emerged from the time of being tempted, a dark time when he was hungry, thirsty, alone, assaulted by the devil. It was a time when Jesus was really tested. Now he emerges from this time of struggle only to find that John the Baptist has been put in prison. Could things get much worse? Well, everything suggests they will. Just as Jesus takes up the message of the Baptist, turn away from your sins, the kingdom of heaven is near, so also will Jesus follow the path foreshadowed by John, imprisoned and dead. With John arrested, one would think it would be time to lay low, if not out of fear, at least out of sensible caution. Some English translations of the Bible seem to suggest that the New English Bible, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. But in reality, it was anything but withdrawal. Herod Antipas, who had, arrest, had arrested and would behead John, who was, was ruler over Galilee, and this was where his real power base was. After John's arrest, Jesus does not go into hiding, but takes up the kingdom message with an even louder voice in a much more dangerous place. In the midst of the darkness of John's demise, Jesus makes a new beginning. And with this new beginning, the dawn of the kingdom begins to rise over the world. To try and reflect what this new beginning really meant, Matthew turns to the ancient prophets, the prophet Isaiah, those words we've heard. Matthew sees in Jesus the fulfilment of those hope-filled words of Isaiah 
uttered in a time of darkness. The people that lived in darkness have seen a great light. Light has dawned on those who lived in the land of death's dark shadow. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. It's not fully realised, but it can already be glimpsed. It is beginning to break out. It has started to intrude into this world of darkness. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Fear is a mighty, powerful force on our lives. When I think about my own journey of faith and reflect on those moments when I know I have not done what I should have done, the times I should have trusted more, the times I should have acted or spoken and I didn't, the times when I didn't get involved and when I know I should have. At the root, always I find fear. Fear of being rejected, fear of failing, fear of losing, fear of the future, fear of insecurity, fear, fear. God is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? The call of Jesus to the disciples of Matthew's gospel is an urgent call, demands an immediate response, requires that all other preoccupations are set aside. We can imagine the fears of his first followers. How will my father get on? How will my family cope? What about the future of the fishing industry and the dangers we will face? The cost of it all, financial, emotional, our reputations. What will people think of us? There's no space for such fears. We're told of Peter and Andrew that at once they left their nets and followed him. We're told of James and John that at once they left their boat and their father and they followed him. The point that's being made is not that these things are unimportant, but there is nothing else that is ultimately important except following Jesus. The Jewish biblical scholar Abraham Herschel once said of God, God is of no importance in someone's life unless God is absolutely and supremely important. We can say the same thing of Jesus' call to the disciples. Unless the call of Jesus upon their lives is of absolute importance, then it is of no importance at all. You can't partially follow Jesus. The German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, We cannot place ourselves at the master's disposal and at the same time dictate our terms. Such a situation would not be discipleship, but a self-improvement program arranged to suit ourselves. People like this have a problem. At the very moment they want to follow, they also want not to follow. Such a person is not only at loggerheads with Jesus, they're at loggerheads with themselves. It's so often fear that holds us back from giving ourselves totally to Christ. 
Yet the paradox is that when we give ourselves totally, then fear loses its power. It loses its hold over us. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? No matter where we look on this Australia Day or Australia Day, the nation and the world appear to be in crisis. The drought that has parched our red land, the fires that have devoured our native flora and fauna, destroyed lives, livelihoods and homes, the dust storms that whirl up and carry away that valuable topsoil, the growing inequality between the extremely rich and everyone else, the horrendous mortality rates, levels of incarceration and alienation among our Indigenous people, the international crimes that our nation is guilty of in regard to the indefinite detention of of asylum seekers, the unbridled carbon emissions of our people, with Australia now being the number one per capita CO2 contributor in the world, the global resurgence of authoritarianism, the growth of explicit racist and anti-Semitic organisations even here in our own country, the movement of governments, including our own, to limit the scope of dissent, the rights of whistleblowers to speak out about wrongs, and the rights of citizens to know what government is doing. And now we have the coronavirus. Someone likened it to the plagues that sent upon Pharaoh. It seems like disaster happens one after another. God is my light and my salvation. Whom or what shall I fear? God is my stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? My call for Australia Day is that more than ever, our nation and our world need those who are willing to seek first God's justice and the coming of the kingdom of God. And to touch those around us with gentleness and compassion and seek to live in faithfulness and integrity no matter what the cost. And to when Jesus calls to say, yes, Lord, I'm here. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Amen.